Welcome to Club Management. I'm your host, DJ Shannon. And on this show, we talk to artists, DJs, and industry professionals on how they're changing their community through music. You can listen to the show on any platform like SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Just type Club Management. And this is episode 60. We have officially arrived to the 60th episode of the Club Management Podcast. All thanks to the people who support the show via Patreon and online. I see all the lovely messages. Um, The love is felt and appreciated. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the last episode with David Kiss. So many great tips shared in that last one from networking with music professionals online to even on stage etiquette, which I think gets missed in this conversation so much. So thank you to David for dropping all of those legendary gems. And I hope that you guys were tuned in. If you did not get a chance to tune into that episode, you can on SoundCloud, Apple Music, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can listen to that now. Without further ado, I want to go ahead and just jump directly into the next episode for the How to Handle Music Business series because this next guest has a wealth of information and just incredible expertise when it comes to handling some music biz. And she's coordinated some big time music deals in all corners of the industry, from booking talent and touring internationally to production and event organizing. Meet Jada Lorraine. House is forever. House is my life. The phenomenal Brooklyn-based DJ and producer has been shaking up dance floors since 2016 with her eclectic sound centered on black underground dance music. And if you've never had a chance to witness Jada in action, you are in for a treat. The New York native can seamlessly weave between records and CDJs, taking party goers on a journey with her carefully crafted sets that span between vocal house, rare grooves, and jack and dance anthems. But Jada's ability to create harmony and unity on the dance floor can also be seen in her community activism. Jada created her popular Skillshare series as a safe place for DJs of marginalized identities to cultivate their DJ skills and learn strategies on how to scale their passion for music into a full-time career. In 2020, Jada co-produced a virtual production camp called In Session alongside her teammates Five Boy and Sam Law that attracted participants from across the globe looking to learn the ins and outs of production. Now, as a booker at the legendary nowadays, Jada continues to extend her passion for cultivating community with her incredible residency. And she had a lot to share in terms of everything you need to know on how to handle music biz, from negotiating your pay, knowing your worth, creating contracts, and ways that we can continue to center diversity on the dance floor. Music has always been a significant part of my life, Um, but prior to getting into DJing and production and, you know, organizing and all the things that I'm, I'm doing now, I was working as an executive assistant um, and I was in college, didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I was working full time. I was super stressed out and spread thin. Um, the school that I was attending required internships on top of the coursework. I was 
working as a music editor for this entertainment blog um, that was ran by all women. And I was interviewing artists and doing some like blogging and write-ups and things of that nature around 2012 when like blogging was really popular. Um, so that was fun. Um, I was meeting a lot of different artists and producers and DJs and hosting parties and kind of um, immersing myself into the nightlife scene in New York. Um, this is back when clubbing was a lot different in New York back then. So it was a lot of that like bottle service type environment, um, very like hip hop forward and top forward, uh, top 40. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's the corner of nightlife that I was getting into at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just, I started really falling in love with um, just the industry and the scene. And, you know, there was a lot of exciting artists back then and I was doing some exciting work and meeting some really cool people. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, somewhere along the way, I picked up DJing just as like a hobby because I've always been a fan of the craft and I, I just love music. And I ended up really loving it. And um, I was still working at the time, um, but I eventually got laid off from my job, this job that I was at for a significant part of you know my young adulthood. I started as a freshman in college and I was there for about seven years. And I got laid off and um, yeah, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I, I took my hand at the DJing thing and I picked up some, some side jobs, working at restaurants, hostessing. And um, yeah, I just leaned into the DJing um, just because I love the way that it made me feel. And so that was kind of, you know, the starting point for me in terms of entering the scene. And um, yeah. now about seven years later, here I am. So <laughs> yes. And oh my God, we are so happy that you just decided to just keep going down that journey. I feel like we have a very similar um, story in the sense that there's always this sort of like changing point that happens in your life where you have to decide, okay, am I going to do this? You know, am I going to continue going down this path or am I going to pursue what I actually want to do? Um, and I totally resonate with that. Um, when you first started like developing your skills behind the decks, because for those who are listening and don't know, Jada is just like not only a monster behind the CDJs, but she could cut it up on some turntables real quick. Um, <laughs> when did you start learning or how did that process go? <clears throat> yeah, so the first time I ever sat down with a setup, it was with turntables. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm really glad I started that way because there's just something so special and organic and just analog about yeah. playing music 
on turntables. Um, so yeah, I sat down with a pair of turntables. I was uh, using a friend's setup that was using Serato at the time. So um, you basically select the music on a laptop using Serato. And then you're using a pair of control vinyl. Mm. Serato makes these control vinyl, which essentially um, allow you to play music digitally on a set of turntables. So yeah, it was kind of jarring at first, um, trying to get the flow of everything. Because yeah. um, obviously playing on turntables is a totally different experience than playing on a pair of CDJs or a controller. Um, so yeah, it was just a nut that I really wanted to crack, you know, because I was really intrigued by it. One thing that I feel has been a struggle um, early on in my process. And I, I feel like it's probably a struggle for new and budding DJs in general is just access to resources and access to equipment and um, especially club industry standard equipment. So at that point, I ended up buying a like $250 basic Pioneer controller just so I could practice at home. Um, but I just always had this longing to like master turntables, just being a fan of the craft and the history of DJing. It was just something that was important to me. So I eventually ended up taking a class at um, the Scratch Academy, which is this DJ school, um, downtown New York City. Um, that's where I met some of my earliest friends um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, from there, I was taking a class once a week for like six or eight weeks. And I got really comfortable on the turntables. Um, so by that point, I was taking gigs um, here and there, nothing too involved. I was still working on the side. Um, but initially, I was bringing my controller to gigs. And then eventually, um, after I got more comfortable on turntables, I started playing on turntables out at gigs mm -hmm. and kind of just got that practice on the spot, which is super nerve wracking, but um, that's just the reality, I think, for a lot of DJs because um, access to equipment is not always um, readily available. So yeah, I, I got a lot of my practice just playing out at gigs, to be honest, like bar gigs or uh, like gigs in the middle of the week, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday that are just like super chill low pressure gigs, I would practice on the turntables. Um, and then eventually I got um, my first pair off of OfferUp or like one of those um, apps where you can just find gear for cheap. And um, yeah, and then I have my, uh, my setup at home with my turntables. So kind of a journey with that, but um, 
it's definitely a journey that I feel like most DJs, producers, if they're playing their own tracks, have to go down, you know, like you have to see that progression of playing at a small show and then, yeah, finally playing for crowds of people, which I always like to ask uh, my DJs on the show, do you remember your first like official DJ set in front of a big crowd? In front of a big crowd, you know, I remember my very first gig. It wasn't a huge crowd. Um, a friend of a friend managed a bar in the Lower East Side, and they let me play one night. That was my first gig. There was probably about 100, 150 people there. Um, but you, I think you mentioned something so beautiful about going to the Scratch Academy, um, which is something that we see so much in your work and why the community and myself love you so much is because um, people need a space to be able to go through that trial and error period to practice. Um, and that is something that you have done so well here in the New York dance scene is carve out spaces for people who are looking to get out uh, into this industry and play. Um, and for people of all different backgrounds to feel welcomed and supported um, throughout their journey. And I got to tell you, when I was in China, I was hearing a lot about your perk party at Good Room um, and seeing pictures. And it just looked like one good black time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so many people just showing up and having fun and just uniting under one roof for music. Um, I wanted to just talk about, uh, wanted you to share a little bit about the perk uh, party series and, and how that came about. So Perk was a project by myself and Niara Sterling. Um, she was one of my friends early on in my career. I think I met her at the end of my first year DJing. Um, and we just clicked. We became friends, had similar taste in music at the time. And um, yeah, we just vibed really well together and we decided to start a party together. We first started out at Lot 45. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that was the first venue that was willing to work with us on a party and kind of honor our vision. Um, we wanted to do something different, um, kind of along the vein of like something like Soul in the Horn, where there's a DJ element where there are DJs playing music, but there's also a live element where there are musicians present that are kind of freestyling along with the DJs. So we had our friend Frank, who was a drummer, who would come and kind of freestyle during the, uh, the parties. Um, we had a couple other musicians, our friend Dan, who played the bass guitar. Um, he's played alongside DJ sets, as well as a few others. Um, on sax and trumpet and um, yeah we just found that like having that extra element brought a different energy to the room and kind of brought people together especially you know black people and people of color who are kind of um, music is a huge part of our culture and um, especially instruments um, are just a huge part of our musical history. And um, they just bring this element to the party that is just like so warm and so organic. And um, yeah, we had a few runs at Lot 45. Um, 
Then we ended up moving in a different direction. And along the way, we developed relationships with different venues in the city by kind of just putting ourselves out there. Um, we were just committed to this vision of creating this space for Black people, um, not your average space, because there are plenty of parties in the city that are centered around, you know, hip hop and, um, and uh, Caribbean music, African music, um, dance music, but we kind of wanted to fuse all of that energy and then bring the instruments as well and just like create this unique atmosphere. Um, so yeah, we, um, we develop relationships with House of Yes mm -hmm. and Good Room, um, Jupiter Disco, and we kind of just, you know, sprinkled that energy at a few different spots um, throughout Brooklyn. And it was awesome. We had a really good run. We, we did the party for a few years. We worked with so many incredible DJs. Um, good Room was really a highlight for me because Good Room is just such a special venue. And, um, you know, reaching out to Josh without having met him or had any prior relationship with him mm -hmm. and pitching this idea to him and having him give us give us that opportunity um it meant so much for you know two black women who are doing this thing independently um he took a chance on us not really having known anything about us and it ended up being super duper successful our first party we did um, an, an Eve's Eve party. So the night before New Year's Eve, um, it was a Monday night, I want to say in 2019. Yep. The end of 2019. And, um, we partnered with Good Faith, which are, um, Mo Yassin and Yellow Tech. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're two, um, incredible DJs who also do other amazing stuff in um the creative scene but yeah we did this collab party and it was like super duper successful we had a whole bunch of djs were able to hire a bunch of um really talented djs of color and put on this awesome party at good room and just like bring that flavor to um to the club and it, it was just like really beautiful and super successful and um Mm -hmm. We did one, uh, one other party at Good Room prior to everything shutting down with the pandemic. But yeah, we had a really good run. Yes, yes. Um, you had mentioned just like getting support from uh, people that don't may not necessarily know what you're doing, but see the vision. And that's so important. And I feel like I've had a lot of those divine um, interactions throughout my life where I might not know a person through Adam, but they are so willing to extend their hand to me. Um, and even you, like when I first came back to the city, you were one of the first people who booked me, um, you know, for the Love for the Sun event. And um, when we did the show at Black Flamingo for your birthday, and I was like, oh my God, you know, like <laughs> that is so good. So, you know, thank you so much for giving me that opportunity because yeah, I did not see that one coming. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. I just remember like seeing your name popping up so much and I'm like, who is she? Like, and I checked you out and you were just like super dope. And I know that you were living in China, but you were back in New York at the time. And I'm like, wow, she's like this black woman killing it. And she's from New York. And I just felt like, you know, you are a necessary piece of the scene here. And I just wanted to um, connect those dots however possible. So yeah, I'm really glad that we connected last summer. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Um, and you know, we, I see you giving that sense, say, that same sense of um, care and mentorship in other projects that you've done in the past with your Skillshare series um, in session. Um, and then I was doing a little bit of digging on YouTube and I really loved the uh, Serato, uh, Serato session that you were doing for Beats by Girls. I thought that was so helpful because even I, like I don't use Serato so much. So I was looking like taking notes myself, like, hey, I should probably learn some of these things because I don't normally use Serato. Um, but all of it has just been so helpful. Um, and particularly with In Session, I feel like the production world tends to exclude women a lot um, and people of other groups from the LGBT community, by POC community, um, which is why I love so much what you were doing with In Session. Um, and just before we jump into the work that, the community work that you continue to extend to nowadays, uh, can you talk a little bit about those those two projects and why they were so important to you? There were so few resources at the time, and it was hard for me to, A, find community, but also uh, find access to resources like equipment and places to practice and um, things of that nature, as well as mentorship. Um, just, you know, flat out having someone similar to me that I can ask questions to that's been through it before. Um, and I feel like, you know, women have come a long way in the scene in terms of DJing. But at the time, it just felt like I was isolated from those women, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, there was um, a period in I think late 2015, where I started interning for Disc Woman and I was doing social media for Disc Woman for a little while. Mm -hmm. And um, just really trying to find my footing in the scene and also learn as much as possible. And um, my calling to uh, create spaces for marginalized people um, to come together and to share those resources and to teach each other and share gems and you know kind of just like find friends as well that are in similar positions um, with their journey so I partnered with Power Plant back in March of 2019 it was women's month um, I knew I wanted to give back to the community for women's month in some way so I went to Power Plant. I pitched this program of workshops because um, I needed a space, obviously, to host the workshops. And I had taught a workshop at Power Plant, I want to say back in 2017, um, with Intercessions, who is um, 
a an initiative in Toronto run by Chippy Nonstop um, that essentially has the same vision of kind of just like bringing resources to femmes and queer people, non-binary trans people of color and kind of just um, host workshops and do open decks and things of that nature to kind of bring that access to our people. Um, so yeah, they were open to the program that I had pitched and it was something from something like 10 to 12 workshops in that month of March. Um, so we did a turntable workshop. We did CDJ workshop. We did some production workshops. We did um, a workshop with collectives um, that spoke on like the power of doing creative projects as a collective versus like an individual and you know just brought in a bunch of uh, friends and peers that I respect and that I've learned a lot from and kind of just did these intimate little workshops throughout the month of March I made them sliding scale um, so that I could pay the instructors but also wanted to make it affordable for the people that were attending and it was just a huge success and um it proved to be a necessity. Um, so I kind of took that on as like my, my side passion project um, for the next couple of years where I was hosting workshops um, wherever and whenever possible. Um, there was a period where I was hosting them at Half Moon when I was doing the pro programming over at Half Moon Radio. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, transformed over time. Most recently, I've been hosting the Skillshare workshops at Nowadays as part of their uh, free community programming on Wednesday nights. Mm -hmm. I've taken a break just because I have a lot going on, um, but I intend to pick that back up probably in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just feel like it's necessary to have these community spaces where people can come together and be amongst their peers and um, others in the community that are like-minded and have similar goals and be able to like share space, learn from each other and, um, you know, kind of just move towards that common goal of like learning and sharing and advancing ourselves and each other um, with our individual goals and collective goals as a community. So that's Skillshare. In terms of in session, that was really just born out of this just hunger for community amidst the quarantine, mm. September of 2020. Um, so two friends of mine, Sam Law and Five Boy, um came to me with this idea to do this production camp this virtual production camp um and i thought it was a brilliant idea and it was around that time where everybody was still home and um not going out not working everybody was working from home and um people were just like craving that community space and um, I think around that time too, a lot of people were picking up new hobbies and 
had a lot of time to like really delve in with um, passion projects. And I feel like that was a really important time for me too, because that was the start of uh, my releasing my productions. Um, so it's interesting that it aligns with In Session um, because In Session was this week long intensive production camp for femmes and non-binary and trans people of color. Um, and we partnered with Splice, which was amazing because they were able to fund the project and we were able to hire um, a bunch of different producers, DJs, and just people who are active in the community in different ways, running labels and things of that nature. Um, and put on like this really comprehensive camp all about production mm -hmm. um, from these technical workshops to these uh, talks about how to release your own music and working with labels and publishing and, you know, all of these subtopics that are related to making music that you know, there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to know when it comes to these topics. It's not just making your track, it's mixing your track and mastering your track and packaging your track and marketing it and licensing it and working with labels and royalties and splits. And there's like so much to learn and so much to know when it comes to releasing music. And now in this digital world, there's also streaming and so there's a lot um, to take into consideration and to be able to learn those topics from peers, um, you know, not only peers, but women and trans and non-binary people who have gone through these things and have learned and made the mistakes and worked with these different institutions and know how to navigate and have these loopholes in terms of you know getting where you need to go with your music so um it was just such like a, a rich experience I feel like I learned so much there were people from all over the world like I want to say 33 different countries were represented um in the attendance and it was just so beautiful Yes, and you do it so beautifully um, now with the work that you do it nowadays. Um, for those who don't know what a, a booker is, could you uh, kind of break it down, the work that you do it nowadays and what that entails? Yeah, for sure. So um, as a booker at Nowadays, I am the lead on Friday night bookings, which are geared primarily towards house music, disco music, um, related genres and Saturday nights are geared more towards techno and um, you know harder genres and so essentially what I do is I take the lead on Friday night bookings I come together with the rest of the booking team at Nowadays and I bring my ideas for Friday nights to the table and um, we collaborate on the bookings for all nights across the board because now we're booking uh, Tuesdays 
through Sundays if you include all of the community programming that we do during the week. Um, but yeah, we, we all sit down together and we discuss the bookings. And then I go away and I execute on making the offers for the Friday night bookings. So that's essentially what I do. Yes. Um, now you probably, your inbox is probably flooded with so many people that want to play it nowadays. And the last question that I asked my previous guests is, how do you go about saying no to someone who isn't necessarily, not that their music is bad or anything, but it might not necessarily be a good fit for the nowadays system. Um, is that like a hard part of being a booker? Yeah, I mean, it's not my favorite part of my job. However, I try to check out as many of the artists that I'm pitched as I can, whether that's people in my inbox advocating for themselves or agents or managers um, advocating for their artists. I try to check out as many of the artists as I can. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but ultimately, um, you know, yeah. not everyone can play it nowadays. There's just so many talented DJs in the city alone, let alone, you know, other cities in, in the States and um, internationally as well. So yeah, yeah I think, um, curation is a big part of what sets nowadays apart in terms of clubs in New York. Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, you know, yeah. there's a curatorial vision. No, yeah, you ha I guess you have to be selective, especially in an incredible venue like nowadays where, yeah, the sound, you know when you're coming there, you're gonna get something special from the performances, um, the DJ set. So I right. definitely see that vision living out um, every time I step foot in the club. Um, right. But there are probably some things that you look for when someone does approach you via email. Um, and the reason why I wanted to do this so much was that I have a lot of younger people in the scene coming to me, well, you know, saying, how do I reach out to someone, you know, uh, what's the first thing that you say? Um, and a lot of folks have been telling me that they have been reaching out to potential bookers or event organizers on social media. Do you think that's the best, like, game plan, like, when you're first initially introducing yourself to someone? I think that reaching out on social media is positive, mm -hmm. but I do think that there should be some type of follow-up with email because social media is tricky. I, I know this from experience, mm -hmm. you know, important information can get lost in an Instagram or a Twitter DM. Mm -hmm. I'm good for, you know, reading a message on Instagram and not remembering the next day. <laughs> so anytime someone reaches out to me on social media, I ask them to follow up with an email. Um, in terms of getting gigs or dealing with bookers or things of that nature, mm -hmm. I think that the most important thing that anyone can do is 
move with intention. And when I say move with intention, I mean, have a vision for yourself. Who are you as a DJ? And what are you, what are you bringing to the club that no one else is, is bringing? You know, how do you set yourself apart? That's number one. Once you determine where you fit in, um, in terms of your sound and things of that nature, and you know whether you want to be a DJ or you want to do mostly live hardware sets, or once you figure out what exactly you want to do, do your research. You know, I get a lot of messages and emails from DJs that I can tell haven't done their research on the club and I can tell when a DJ has done their research on a club um, I think you know knowing the environment of the clubs that you want to play at is super important because in New York there's there's a wealth of venues and clubs and bars and lounges and places to play and not every DJ is going to be a good fit for every bar but I do guarantee that there is a right fit for every DJ in New York. You just have to know um, what that is for you. So I think doing your research is super important. Going out and attending these clubs and, and going to parties at these clubs and these bars that you want to play at is a good first step. Um, yeah. And then learning who the bookers are and um, familiarizing yourself with their curation is a good step as well. Um, Cause like I said, I think nowadays has such a unique um, vision when it comes to curation that's different from maybe a club like elsewhere or a club like Goodroom or a club like Public Records, they all have their unique um, vision and their unique taste. So learning who the bookers are and kind of familiarizing yourself with their taste and their curation is also a good step. Um, and then approaching, in terms of approaching bookers, um, I think it's super important to start with an email. So craft an email to the whichever booker that you're reaching out to and give as much information as you can. Who are you? What type of music do you play? Um, you know, mixes are, are always an essential part of this type of email. So if you can send a current mix or a recent mix that reflects your style as a DJ um, as it stands currently mm -hmm. is super helpful. Um, and then just giving a bit more information about yourself, like uh, what venues have you played and, mm -hmm. and how are you involved in the community or, or just whatever information about yourself that you find would be useful for the booker to know. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, maybe following up with like some type of social media um, presence so this person can can 
see your name a second time and kind of resonate and and see who you are and and you know we all love to like research a person and and see who the mutuals are and see what work they've done and mm-hmm. how they present online because I feel like these days Instagram is like your resume for you personally I have I actually haven't asked this to previous guests but um, for you personally how are you about people approaching you in clubs to talk about business is that off the table or are you open to it if it's done in a certain way personally I'm not a fan just because I don't think the club is the best place to talk about anything really I'm when I'm at the club you know I'm there to be a resource because I am a part of the club and the culture of the club but I just don't think it's the right time to discuss anything quite frankly like I'm on the dance floor getting down having a good time um so I think that introductions are useful um for sure it's always good to put a face to a name um but I think I'm an email type of girl like email is to me the best way that you can conduct business because it's concise you can include all the information that you need and you know you don't have to worry about pulling out your phone to write things down and I, I, I think that um I think it's good to show face and make introductions but I think that like email is your best friend when it comes to um following up at least with information and you know Mm -hmm. your mix and your cv or whatever you want to send over so yeah right yeah i agree if you can somehow package um how you want to present your your artistry whether you're a dj or producer whether that's like building a website for yourself where you have all your links in place or you have an electronic uh, press kit that you can send to, to potential bookers. Um, I think that's a great way to go about it. And just to kind of piggyback off of the social media aspect of um, reaching out to bookers, like for me personally, I'm not really on social media that much anymore. Like I got locked out of my Twitter a couple of weeks ago and I absolutely love it. I'm not missing it at all. (laughs) Um, And then with Instagram in general, if you're not a close friend of mine, I think the messages get sent to like, you know, like your other inbox. I don't know what you call that. So I wouldn't even be able to see if you sent me a message if we're not, you know, actual friends. So yeah, that can get, yeah, that, it's just better to do email all in all. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, for folks, this has been a really highly debated question, and I'm really interested to hear your perspective. When it comes down to negotiating performance rates and fees, um, what do you think up and coming or just, yeah, whatever, seasoned or newer DJ should keep in mind? when they're approaching individuals like yourself um, in terms of negotiating fees, because I think sometimes from what I've experienced um, on the booking end as well, since I used to own a club is that, you know, an individual may think, well, I've played here and here, so I deserve this amount, but there's a lot of things that they don't necessarily see that goes on in the back end that we as bookers and event organizers have to keep in mind. So, um, what's your take on negotiating fees and, and, and what's fair? Yes, 
this topic. Um, it's interesting because I have my thoughts on this as a DJ that's been navigating the scene for seven years. And then I have my thoughts on this now that I'm a booker at a club. Um, but I think ultimately one thing that's important to remember is that there's nuance with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, every club is different. Every venue and club has different expenses that they're incurring and different things that are going on that are gonna affect the budget um, and the amount, the fees that they're able to pay artists. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, it's important to factor in the work that you're dedicating to the club. You know, the time that it takes to prepare your set and the money that you're spending on your music and for people that play vinyl their records um and factor in you know the time the time not only the time but the money that you're investing to you know show up at a at a venue and play a set um but i personally think it's good to be flexible when it comes to fees um, because there are just different factors in in every situation that are going to affect the offer that you're being made. Um, I think that it's good to have a bottom line, um, that number that, uh, not to put a price on yourself, but that lowest number that you're willing to take for a gig. Um, But then also kind of have a range of fees that you're willing to take for different situations, you know? So for example, as a DJ myself, there are different tiers, I'll call it, for that I have for different work that I do. So playing at a bar, a local bar, I'm going to expect a different fee versus playing at a club or doing a corporate gig or playing out of town, you know? Um, So I think it's important to be flexible and to kind of do your research and kind of um, just remember, you know, the type of offers that you're being made. I also think it's important to talk to your peers about their experiences and the fees that they're getting and to kind of have a general knowledge of what fees are being paid in the city or, you know, domestically or whatever, um, overall as a whole. So you can kind of gauge where you fit in, um, versus the standard. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it's wise to be flexible because every situation is different. And um, another th- thing I like to take in consideration as well is that, you know, sometimes you're going to get offers from um, independent promoters who are, you know, promoters who are doing their own thing and 
putting the work in to create spaces that are different and cater to certain crowds and they may have a limited budget but it may be a really cool gig and it may open you up to a different community that you want to tap into so um like I say it's just good to be flexible that's my personal take on it um having played a bunch in this city in different scenes in this city as well over the past seven years and having played in a few other countries and and, and cities as well um I think it's good to be flexible um but it's also equally as important to know your worth and know what the bottom line is for you and not be afraid to advocate for yourself and not be afraid to say no when something you know is below what you deserve so um yeah to be firm on your worth but also to be flexible um is important Mm -hmm. i think i saw um you put up a tweet about this recently how you know, there's still all kinds of fuckery going on in terms of, um, you know, women not really getting their fair share in this industry and how it is so important to advocate for yourself um, in that regard. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing, that's okay. But do you think there is a minimum that people should be asking for? You know, I'm glad you brought this up, Shannon, because <laughs> it's interesting. Um, that tweet came from an experience I had recently where an institution that we're all familiar with um, wanted to book me for a DJ set in another city. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm independent. I don't have an agent. I represent myself. I have someone that helps me manage my email because I, I just would be too swamped otherwise. Um, but ultimately I'm advocating for myself. And so I'm still learning um, as I go. And so they made an offer to me and as compared to other offers that I've received to play in other cities, factoring in, you know, travel and accommodations and ground transportation, there are all these additional factors that you have to consider when you're playing out of town. I felt like they were lowballing me. So I reached out to two of the other DJs that were on the bill, both men, mm. cis, straight men, and I asked them what they were getting paid for the same exact gig. Um, they would both also be flying in or coming in from out of town. So it's a similar situation. Um, and they were each getting paid like almost, almost three times what I was offered. What? Right. So um, it was interesting because I asked this is another thing I've learned is like to get comfortable with negotiating because a lot of times these offers aren't fixed, you know, sometimes there's um, flexibility to come up a bit on the offer and sometimes there isn't, but it's always good to ask. So I asked them, I asked the institution if they would 
um, come up on the feet a bit to take in consideration all of these additional expenses that I'm gonna have to take on being that it's an out of town gig. And they told me that they couldn't. So then after they told me they couldn't is when I asked the two other male DJs that I knew on the bill. And so it was really interesting to know that they wouldn't honor my increase that I requested on the fee, but they're paying these other DJs like almost triple what they're paying me. And I felt slighted, you know? Um, So ultimately I ended up asking them, you know, about the discrepancy in fees. Because it's worth it to give them the opportunity to explain why there's such a gap in what I'm being paid as a black woman, a queer black woman versus what a a cis straight man is getting paid, you know? Because that's, it's, it's like, it's just more of this gender wage gap bullshit, you know? Um, and after I asked them, they eventually ended up honoring the increase that I asked for that they initially said no to. So it's just super important to advocate for yourself because people will try to get away with whatever they think that they can get away with. And I've seen so many friends get exploited because they didn't ask questions. And um, I think I'm deviating a bit from your your original question, but no. I don't think any I don't think anyone should play personally for less than like 200, 250 in New York. Like that's minimum. I personally can't afford to play for a gig that low anymore. And I know that for me to play a gig that I'm gonna ask for 300 minimum, no matter what the gig is. Sometimes I'll make more than that, which is which is great, which is ideal. But anything less than that personally is it's it's just not worth it for me. And this is coming from somebody who's been playing in this city for seven years. You know, it, it may be different for somebody else. Somebody who's newer, it may be, you know, maybe somebody is willing to do gigs for a hundred bucks, like a like a, a a low key bar night where there's not a lot of traffic at the bar, and the the fee is low because of that. It's good to take those gigs for somebody who's newer because you get to practice and you get to play in front of an audience where it's low commitment. You know what I mean? If you mess up, nobody's gonna be bothered about it. But I think that um, it's important to figure out what is worth it for you individually and stick to that. And as you evolve as a DJ and as your needs change, it's okay to increase your fee and to stand your ground on on what you're willing to make for a gig, you know? Because first of all, the way rent is set up in New York right now, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's in, it's insane some of the offers that some people make and I get it. Like I think that a lot of people are are still especially people that aren't like in the DJ world and and don't go out a lot. I think that DJing has like this connotation of like 
being a hobby or like, you know, I think a lot of people think of DJs as like somebody that just comes and plays like your cousin's baby shower or whatever. But this is like a lot of people's bread and butter. And so like people have expenses, like all of us have expenses just like everybody else. And people have to pay rent and bills and everything's like expensive and it continues to inflate. And now with all the recent like international stuff, like just everything is so expensive. Like I've been looking at flights for like some out of town gigs that I have coming up. And some of these flights have like doubled in price. Like I'm looking at flights to LA and they're like almost $600 when you could get a flight to LA round trip for like 250 bucks a few months ago. So it's like, it's really important to know your worth and stick to your guns and not be afraid to say no because you may think it's worth it to get that extra hundred bucks or a hundred an extra 200 bucks it just ends up not being worth it like it's not worth it to spread yourself too thin or burn yourself out if you can't even pay your bills you know what i'm saying like i feel like we've all been there being in new york and having to like acclimate to like this this hustle and grind mentality and it's just not worth it like I know that some people have no choice that's just the reality because bills have to get paid but um I think that especially people of color and and marginalized people we need to know our worth and we need to know that there's money out there that's available to us and stop selling ourselves short and stop settling for less because the money's out there. The money is out there. And, and you would be so surprised what some people are getting paid to DJ for a couple of hours. It's just insane. Like, especially a lot of these like white European international like touring DJs, they just make insane unfair amounts of money and the, the money is out there. So I think it's just important to consistently and continuously put the work in and, and and reanalyze where you stand every so often and know your worth and add tax because it's hard out here, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've been just exploited for way too long. So it's just important to... Um, to advocate for yourself, have those conversations, do the research, put the work in, but also get the coin that you deserve back. So, yeah. Oh, that's a fact, man. I mean, I mean, I can't, you talked about burnout. I can't tell you how many times, like before when I was living in Asia and even here, like I always had a second job. So I commend you and all the folks that are doing DJing and working in nightlife full time. It's, it's a tricky job, you know, especially not only with the, um, you know, pay disparities, but, you know, with all the things that are happening now with the pandemic and, you know, having to just kind of like be on your toes with the economy, you are doing incredibly well. Um, and I'm just so glad that you've, stuck it through you know because yeah sometimes it feels discouraging you know what I mean yeah absolutely for sure I've definitely spent significant amounts of time just like struggling you know just like 
taking whatever gigs I can and still struggling. And it's like, we, we all need to do better. Like we all need to do better from the top down. Like people have to, people have to live, you know? So yeah, it's like, don't, don't settle and, and know your worth, ask questions. Like I said, be flexible in certain situations because certain gigs are going to are gonna bring you more than what money can can give you um but stick to your guns and also know who you're dealing with you know like like I said dealing with a bar is different than dealing with a club is different than dealing with a brand brands especially have so much money they have so much money if we're talking about like corporate gigs, I was, the minimum for corporate gigs is a lot higher. So it's like, just know who you're dealing with and, um, and know your worth and add tax. Like I said, that's a fact. Yeah. The corporate gigs. And I don't think a lot of DJs know that like those are paid. I mean, they, yeah, pay significantly higher um and sometimes the work is even easier right like I think I did a store gig one time I DJed at a mall uh when I was in Asia and I got paid like the equivalent of like a thousand USD and I was like what (laughs) I'm just here for an hour just playing music in the sneaker store (laughs) like there's no way I got that out there um just fitting at a club or uh you know or maybe so but like I haven't come across those gigs those level of gigs quite yet but yeah, I was like, wow, this is like, this is where it's at. <laughs> These brands have money. These brands have money and they want, brands want to work with people that are going to make them look good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we live in that age of like influencers, right? And like TikTok and Instagram and, and just brands want that cool factor. So they're going to pay money for it if it's going to make them look good if you're a good dj and you play good music and you are cool and you have a certain like image or social media presence these brands are going to pay even more for that so it's like like i keep saying know your worth and add tax because the money is out there and especially with brands the money is there so and don't be afraid to say no that's another thing too Mm, that is so important um because i mean you hear stories coming out more and more where some folks in the industry feel like they have to sell themselves to get into certain rooms and that is really not the case in the world that we live in today like you can really make a bag being yourself um because there's so many different platforms that you can use so many resources um and yeah you find your community that will support you where you don't have to feel like you have to compromise who you are and your values so um i really i I really agree with that as well um so when when things are kind of set and all the negotiations are put through What's the best way to solidify things? I know in the past, um, I've seen you do something called like a performance agreement or offer letter, which I think is so beautiful. Um, Can you tell folks what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So my process in terms of confirming a booking 
And I know you do something similar because I've booked you before. <laughs> but basically what I like to do is just have a document that's confirming all of the terms on paper so that there aren't any surprises, both the DJ and the venue or the entity, whether that's a brand um, or an individual, um, can have this concise agreement on paper. Um, what I like to do is, and I, I got my friend who is also my entertainment lawyer to draft this performance agreement um, for me, where I just added a bunch of um, clauses based on like experiences that I've had throughout the years that I want to clarify on paper um, mm -hmm. so that whoever's booking me knows what my expectations are. And um, yeah, it's great. It eliminates a lot of back and forth that you would have to do with the entity otherwise. Um, and some clauses that I have in my agreement are things like, for example, one thing that was important for me to include in my performance agreement was that promotion of the event is at my discretion because I found that a lot of times these parties or promoters or entities were booking me to DJ but had all these expectations about social media promotion related as well when ultimately as a DJ the fee that you're being paid is for your DJ set and the work that you're putting into that DJ set. Promotion is a separate cost, especially when you have um, a crafted follow, like a crafted curated following that, um, that really uh, engages with the content you post there's a, a there's an additional cost associated to that. Like people pay a lot of money for that. So um, I wanted to eliminate the expectation that I would be posting about an individual event X amount of times because that's just not the method and the strategy that I use for promoting my events. Ultimately, what I like to do is create a dedicated post one time for each event that I do. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want there to be this expectation on me that people can book me to promote their event and sell tickets for them when ultimately my job is to show up as a DJ. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that was just like one clause that I threw in there. Um, it's good to sit down with a lawyer if you have access to that so that they can, um, customize the performance agreement to your particular liking. Um, but it's also something you can honestly do yourself. Um, and yeah, it's good to have that just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Um, you know, the fee is agreed upon, the payment terms are agreed upon. That's another thing like setting expectations around payment. And if you need a deposit for each gig you do, making sure that's outlined in your performance agreement is helpful so that 
the promoter knows that you're expecting to be paid a deposit up front and you're expecting to be paid the balance on the day of the event. Because a lot of times another issue that I've run into a lot over the years is like having to chase people for my money. And it's just such a drag on top of like all the million other things you have to do as a DJ advocating for yourself. Chasing promoters for money is just, it's a drag and nobody wants to do that. So kind of like setting these expectations up front um, and having everything in one central document is super, super helpful. Um, I have a, a performance agreement that I worked with my friend who is my lawyer as well. Um, we worked together on the, the document and I am happy to share the document um, with you or anybody else who'd like to take a, a look at it or like use it as a template for their performance agreement. Um, because I think also another message that you send when you have a performance agreement is like, look, I'm a professional. These are my expectations. This is what I'm bringing to the table. This is what I expect you to bring to the table. We're all on the same page. Um, if anything is to come up, then we can refer back to this document. Um, and it just lets people know that you're not playing around. So mm -hmm. it, I highly recommend that everybody have some type of performance agreement, even if it's not like a super in-depth contract, just like a one pager with all the details of the event and you know fees and payment schedule and all, all that good stuff. Um, I think another important tool that I use, which isn't necessary, but it has been super helpful for me is having a good accounting system. Um, mm -hmm. I use a program called Wave App and it's essentially like QuickBooks, but it's free. And I've been using it for like two or three years and it's great. I, I linked my business debit card to the app. So it tracks all the expenses that I have for me and categorizes them. So um, I have everything in one central place when I go to do my taxes. But I also use it for my invoicing, which was my next point is that it's always good to have your invoice created up front um, and including your payment information, whether that's PayPal or wire transfer or however you expect to receive payment. Sometimes certain venues have a preferred way of paying out DJs. So that'll change um, from gig to gig. Um, but yeah, just having that invoice ready and sent along with the performance agreement or after the performance agreement is executed is actually when um, I would usually send an invoice and a W-9. And um, yeah, I think those are like the three central things. Some people also, or I'm sorry, the three main things. Some people also have um, a rider. So like a technical and hospitality rider. Yeah, I um, got that. Yeah, it's, it's not 100% necessary as long as you know uh, what, e what type of equipment you like to play with. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it is helpful. Uh, a technical writer is essentially another one sheeter of information regarding your technical needs um, when it comes to playing a DJ set. So essentially you'll list the equipment that you use when you're DJing. Most clubs will have the standard Pioneer mixer, two CDJs, two turntables. Sometimes they'll just have one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's good to um, have a technical rider so that the club can accommodate um, your needs for your set. And a lot of times uh, clubs like nowadays, we have a few different mixers um, available to our DJs and different setups. Um, sometimes, you know, people will ask for four CDJs or some people will ask for two CDJs and two turntables. So mm-hmm. rider, so we can accommodate their tech needs and have um, the booth set up the way that they like it for their set. So there aren't any issues. Um, so yeah, a performance agreement, once that's all executed, I would follow up with an invoice, a detailed invoice and a W-9, which for um, most gigs, you'll need a W-9, which is um, just like a one page tax document, standard, pretty standard. Um, and then your tech rider. And then if you have a hospitality rider as well, um, some people will have a hospitality rider just requesting, you know, uh, bottles of water or a bottle of vodka or, you know, whatever they like to drink while they're playing. Um, And then, yeah, the venue can have all of that stuff set up for you um, when you arrive at the venue. So, yeah, those four things I think are super important to have when you are um, confirming gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say with the writers, now you see people um, kind of adding an inclusion writer, right? Like uh, maybe they want to have a certain level of um, women on the lineup with them when they're playing or their request to have, um, you know, different uh, DJs from different backgrounds play along with them as well, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, just the yeah. lineup is diverse, you know? Absolutely. That's something that I recently added to my performance agreement as well. Um, And I think that's so important. I forget um, which DJ I saw doing that. But yeah, it's just a great way to hold these venues accountable. And, um, you know, kind of avoid like tokenizing and exploiting artists, you know? Yeah. so yeah, I love, I love, love, love the inclusion bit. And I encourage everyone to have an inclusion writer or an inclusion piece in their performance agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, I normally issue one uh, when I'm doing an event and it just keeps things so clear. Um, also in the event that things you know go awry, like the event gets canceled or something happens, that way you the terms are set and you can kind of figure out what to do or refer back to that uh, document if things go <laughs> wrong, essentially. Um, but you mentioned something really beautiful. I didn't know that there was an app called, what did you call it? Wave? Um, it's Wave Apps, I think is the website. Wave 
W A V E A P P S. Hold on, let me just confirm that. I'm pulling it up now. Yeah. But yeah, girl, it's like been such an amazing tool for the past few years because I set up my LLC um, mm -hmm. at the end of 2019. And you know, once you legitimize your business, it's really important to keep your books together and, um, you know, just have your financials organized. And um, I didn't really do a lot of um, like financial planning or anything with my personal stuff prior to starting my LLC. Um, so I was just looking for different resources and I came across Wave and it's been so great. Yes, man. So I've been paying 20 something for freaking QuickBooks and I could use this app. <laughs> it's just as good as QuickBooks. It's wave apps with an S at the end.com. So yeah. Oh yes, I'm definitely going to be using that. Um, yeah, it's important to keep your personal finances and your business finances separate. Um, if you're going to be doing this full time and, and like Jada said, legitimizing your business. And I actually started a, a LLC um, at the beginning of 2020 because I was like okay well I'm getting more and more bookings um, I think this is the route that I want to go down and also I was doing independent contract work for the company uh, for the blog company that I work for now so I was like I need one anyways um, and yeah it's just been so great to have apps like um, Jada mentioned and QuickBooks to keep things clear um, and yeah, to separate your business uh, finances from your personal finances. I think that's um, when folks are first getting into this industry, you know, they kind of treat it as a hobby, but no, you really have to start thinking about this as a business um, and how you're going to expand your business when things, you know, start to pick up for you and um, an LLC and keeping your finances organized is the way to do it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like I feel like my financial situation with gigs and just like work, like music related work, mm -hmm. it just took off when I just got organized and separated my mm -hmm. business account from my personal account. It's, it's insane. And as well, like having an LLC, <clears throat> there are just so many benefits to setting up your business as an LLC um, or just legit legitimizing it, period, because there are um, mm -hmm. there are alternatives to LLCs. But yeah, just like, you know, being able to write off your expenses. And, you know, I think that like I applied for my LLC at the perfect time because when the pandemic happened, I got so much access to like all of these res resources for small businesses, which is like have been a huge help. Um, and has allowed me to fund like some some upgrades to my studio and and things like that. So um, yeah, I I highly recommend getting an LLC, especially if you're taking DJing seriously as a, a career, or at least if it's you know a main source of income for you. Mm -hmm. um, there are just like so many benefits to it. So yeah. Yeah, that's a fact. Oh my God, I could talk to you. We've literally been talking for like an hour and a half. <laughs> I could talk to you all day. Well, <laughs> um, you know, just, just kind of wrapping up here, you dropped so many gems and I can see the time, the dedication, the passion that you put into your work, not only as a DJ, but as a lover of culture and wanting to just like 
progress society forward, you know? Like, I love that you're so dedicated to this. What's one piece of advice or maybe something that you've kind of kept close to your heart that has just kept you, you know, in pursuit of, of, of your happiness with music um, and that maybe someone who's getting into this industry should keep in mind um, throughout the good and the bad? It's really important to believe in yourself and bet on yourself Mm -hmm. it's so hard to just exist as a woman of color Mm -hmm. um and i think that like in this industry we tend to lack confidence in certain spaces or be harder on ourselves um because there's so much more expected of us um but to just own your power and hold on to your power and believe in yourself, bet on yourself, invest in yourself, work hard and claim that all that you deserve because I find that music as people of color is just like our birthright and just knowing that you belong um, and that you're worthy and that you know, you can sustain yourself off the things that you love if that's what you want to do. House is forever. House is my life. House is my soul. House is emotion. House is my friend. House is love. House is forever. We're coming out of the interview between me and Jada Lorraine. Mm, 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 mm. That was a really great episode. And I want to just stress the point that Jada brought up about really going after what you're worth and never settling for less. I mean, there are so many instances where artists have felt like exploited in certain situations. And I think that is why it's so important to have things like performance agreements in place. Um, clear channels of communication, whether that's via email um, or just something written, some written form of communication where both parties can sign because you don't want to ever feel like you're not getting what you deserve, especially when you're someone like Jada who puts in an incredible amount of time and effort and, you know, detail into their craft every single day. Um, that's It's just so important. Um, I also really loved the bit where she talked about the diversity rider, you know, having different people on the lineup to continue to center diversity on the dance floor. Um, and not only diversity on the dance floor, but diversity in the music that we are hearing from all parts of the world. It's so incredibly important to have those voices, those stories, um, you know, projected through the music that we play on the dance floor and artists that are representing those communities. So, um, that's actually something that I want to add to my writer myself. Um, and I know I got, I told you guys last week that I was getting a, a new contract, um, you know, created. So that's definitely something that I'm going to have my people put into mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I just really loved this episode. So many gems dropped in this one. I hope you guys had a pen and pencil just writing away and taking everything down. Um, please follow Jada on Instagram. That's at Jada Lorraine, J-A-D-A-L-A-R. 
E-I-G-N. That was a tongue twister. <laughs> but that's on all uh, social media platforms. And yeah, run up her music. Go to her shows. She does a really great residency on Friday nights and nowadays. Um, and you'll probably see her now more on Sundays for the Mr. Sunday event. Um, just incredible. And I really love the, the unity that she not only is able to invoke on the dance floor, but in her community as well. So shout out to her. And she was actually one of the first people who booked me when I came back to New York City. I talked a little bit about that last year in my uh, New Year's episode, how just that event was so beautiful being out there in the park and playing all that incredible music with everyone in the community. So big shout out to her. Well, that is that for this episode. But please, if you're new to the show, run up all of the archive on SoundCloud, Apple Music. We also have our own personal stream. You can find that on our social media pages. That's club underscore management on Instagram, uh, the club management podcast on Facebook. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to donate. That's patreon.com slash club management one. Until next time, 